if we can help Japan and we can um, provide Japan something, you know, that's our own gaishi. Today, our guest is Nofiam, and he works for Profound Vision. It's a company that actually brings IT professionals into Japan because of his love for Japan and wanting to give back. So without any further ado, here's Nofiam. Thank you for having me on your show. Where were you born? I was born in Pakistan originally, mm -hmm. but then uh, my father used to work for the airline, and then my dad got a transfer back uh, or transferred to Japan. How old were you in that house? Uh, about six or seven years old. So you remember some of your time in Pakistan or England? Do you remember um, both? More Pakistan than England because I was very so. small at that time. Right. So those just vague memories uh, mm -hmm. because I've never really lived in Pakistan. Uh, so people ask me, how is Pakistan? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But can you speak the language? Yeah, my mom used to speak Urdu all the time. So mm -hmm. we became trilingual. Uh, as to speak, so we right. became uh, English, Japanese, Urdu language, or right. you want to call it Hindi, or whatever you want to call it. That Do you is. ever have a chance to speak Urdu now? Uh, yeah, um, basically when I speak to my mom, or when I speak to my sister, or when I do some work uh, back in Pakistan, I usually speak it, but that's, uh, that's about it. But at home, uh, it's basically all Japanese. Okay, so and you didn't teach your kids, or uh, your child? Well. Right. It's something that's not to be taught. It's something that she can just pick up, I think. I mean, I don't think we have to sit there with our children to teach them any kind of a language. I guess the, ch the, ch the children feel the vibe at home. You know, they see their... You, you, what, your wife can speak Uru too? No, no, no. She just speaks Japanese only. What about your daughter? Uh, Japanese mostly because she's going down to a Japanese school. Okay. So, but, you know, I think at times she understands what dad is saying in Urdu language or in English. And we turn CNN all the time in the house. So ever since she was born. So, you know, she, she, I think she can manage, she can understand. Uh, but, you know, fluency and listening are two different aspects. That's true. So, you know, I think she can understand it, but I think she doesn't have an opportunity to speak it. Mm -hmm. So tell me, as a child, you went to when you came to Japan, you went straight into St. Mary's. That's right. Okay, what kind of child were you? Were you more academic or were you more sports-minded? I guess I was basically a very um, quiet kind of a kid at that time, if some of the people listening might disagree, but yeah, it was true. And then I, uh, because I was transferred over uh, from Pakistan and it was a new environment for me, so it took me about from third grade uh, to about fifth grade, it took me about two years just to settle in. Um, and then after that, just things just became very normal. I, I was Boy Scout, I joined Cub Scouts, uh, you know, I did all of these activities uh, back at St. Mary's, uh, playing soccer. Um, basically, uh, my passion was that I picked up at St. Mary's was baseball. And I follow that very, very vividly even today. Um, I'm a very big fan of baseball. What position? Uh, I was a pitcher and uh, basically in the right in the right um, in the right field. In right field. Yeah. From what age did you start playing baseball? Did you um, get the interest? Age of six, age of six or seven. As soon as I joined, as soon as I joined St. Mary's, I was in the summer league baseball camp, and that's how I picked it up. What about your dad? Did he like baseball? 
Uh, no, he was too busy with uh, mingling with people, with executives. Uh, you know, we usually had a lot of executives come down to the house. We know that Prime Minister Nakasone, he came down to our house, um, you know, when he was still in, when he was still alive. Uh, he, why, why was your father dealing with the uh, politicians? Uh, because he was in the Pakistan, he was working for Pakistan International Airlines. And at that time, they were trying to grow routes uh, of Pakistan International Airlines going into different places. At that time, Pakistan International Airlines was flying from Tokyo to Manila, Manila to Bangkok, Bangkok to Karachi, and then they opened up another route, which was Tokyo to, I think, uh, Beijing, and then from Beijing to, to Islamabad. Oh. So that was the golden years of Pakistan International Airlines. Now, was your father the president of Pakistan International Yes, he was the, he was the heading, okay, so he was heading Pakistan International oh. Airlines here in Japan. That was interesting. From what year was that? Uh, I think it's 1977 to 1984, 85. That was really a, a bustling time. That's right. when Germans were traveling everywhere. Right. And the airlines were trying to come in here. That's right. That's right. That's really and then he airlines. became the head of Korea as well. So he became a station manager of Korea and Japan, sitting in Japan. So he was controlling two stations. Okay. And uh, But then the Korea... The Korea chapter didn't work out that well, mm -hmm. so it was just Japan after that. Okay. But uh, yeah, so that's how we all ended up in Japan. Okay, so going back into schooling, so you enjoyed baseball. What did you like academically? Would you find yourself focusing on? Um, mostly social studies and um, and I guess history to to some extent. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I don't like typically dead people, you know, <laughs> or you know, past. But the history does teach you a lot. I mean, it basically shows how, you know, times revolve, how they come back. And uh, and so some of those things were very interesting to me. It wasn't back then, but it is now. Right. So in high school, when you had to start to hone your ideas into what you're going to do now in the future, because you're going to go to college and everything, mm -hmm. what'd you pick? I picked economics. And where'd you go to college? I went down, uh, I went down to Pakistan for about four years, I went down to St. Patrick's University. What made you decide to go back to Pakistan? Uh, my dad actually wanted me to do that. Okay. Uh, he said that once you get into your commercial life, or basically as you start working, you will have no chance to go back to Pakistan whatsoever. This is the only time that you can actually go back, learn the culture, learn the people, learn what it is, and then you can truly be a global academia or a global person. Did he have brothers and sisters there? Uh, yeah, my very little. Um, I said my mom's uh, brother used to live in New York, in Queens. Um, so from my mom's side, that was the only family. My brother, or my father's side, majority of the family was living in England or uh, in Australia. So very few relatives. So and, you were on your own when you went there. Well, my grandmother was there, okay. and um, but you know, that's your mother's mother or your father's mother. Um, both at that time they were both existent. Oh, they were both the, there. Okay. They were both there. So were they in close proximity too? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. To we have a very very close family at that. You know, okay. so we were there. Um, but I um, after after like uh, you know going back to Pakistan was a very big culture shock to me. Huge. And what, okay, tell me how. What was it like for you when you went back? I didn't know the. I didn't know the streets. I didn't know where I was supposed to go. I wasn't. I didn't know what I was going to be expecting. Um, you know. I mean, I was picking out things like towels and stuff like that to take back to Pakistan. And that's where my mom came in and said, "You don't need all this stuff because it's all sold there." So as you can see, you know, we had very limited kind of a. Um, connection to Pakistan. So you weren't going over the summertime or anything. Had you had you you'd been there 
been there once in a while, but it's only for like two weeks. I see. Uh, you know, and then you, you know, were living there. Living there. So we, you know, we don't, we really don't know. But it, this is like four years of my life going back, and I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen. Right? Am I going to be, ex- you know, am I going to be alive in four years, or what's going to happen? But what it turned out, Lance, is that you know, I think that was the best decision that my dad had made for me. He's no longer, you know. He's no longer alive. He passed away in 2020. Okay. But, uh, you know, but I think that was one of the best decisions that he made for me because I saw two or three cultures. I saw the American culture, I saw the Japanese culture, and I saw a culture from Pakistan. And it basically showed me on how different people are, but how similarities are of the same people. Tell me about the culture shock when you went there at the beginning. I want to hear how you felt. What was it like? Well, uh, <clears throat> and, how, and when did you start to feel like you were, you were in the groove now and you were understanding more? Actually, I never picked up that groove in Pakistan. You were there for how long? Only for three or four years. Come. And you never felt a part of it like that? No, I didn't. Um, the, the mindset was very different. The, um, the people that we, the atmosphere that we grew in was very different. Um, it's like... You know, you're having a living in the, the most advanced country on the planet, and then you're going to, down to Pakistan and uh, trying to fit in there. But one of the things that I did learn in Pakistan that the people were so nice, and people were so friendly, and everybody wanted to strive for the best, um, and everybody wanted to come out um, and basically say that you know they've done something. Um, so a lot of competition. Um, and um, and people there are basically, um, you know, working for success all the time. Uh, a lot of my, a lot of my uh, college mates, which I have known um, or went to school with, they are now partners at EY. Um, there are some of them that are basically in working in Morgan Stanley, New York. Uh, some are basically in Goldman Sachs, uh, you know. And uh, so it, it basically from one country. And then all of a sudden, going to a second country, basically expanded my um, a lot of my universe, a lot of my universe. Um, and today, on Facebook, I have friends from Pakistan, I have friends from America, I have a friend from England, I have friends from all over the place, and you know, and that makes it very truly diversified. Uh, me, that's sitting here today. Right. Would you graduate with what kind of degree? Uh, economics. 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 Did you did you get involved in any sports while you were there in Pakistan? Uh, cricket. Cricket. <laughs> that was the first time for you too. Wasn't yeah, it? that was really the first time for me playing cricket. I've seen cricket. But that's close to baseball, but not really. Not really. But I think what what the what what the British what the British basically say that cricket came first, baseball came second. Basically, what they say. Yeah. So I don't know how far that's true, but. That could be one of the cases. I kind of understand the game, but then I don't because it can last for so long. And those are the fun eight hours of your life. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> At the end of the day, cricket is all math. It's all math. It's all math. Meaning? Meaning that you know that everything is basically done on a calculation. I mean, like yeah, oh, you it's all math. Okay, I'm it's trying. all math. I okay, mean, okay. baseball is basically more visual. I mean, you right, don't have right. to use any any math in it. Right, right. But you know, I mean, basically, if you know, if somebody has scored and all, you know, if a team has come in with 166 runs, for example, or 266 runs, the opponent team has to think about how they're going to make 166 runs. So, it's a lot of math in there. Wow. At least for that's what I feel. But it's okay. a lot of fun. It's the first time to hear it described like that. It's all math. That's the way I kind of felt it. Okay. 
So then you so you leave Pakistan, you finally graduate, you leave mm -hmm. to do what? And who'd you work with? No, and I started work for Smith Barney. Um, in in Pakistan? No, or? no, no. In Tokyo, I came down. To, I came back to Tokyo okay. to do my shoe show Katsudo, which is okay. basically you know, new job hunting um, for freshmen. And at that time, the bubble era was just had had completely been finished. Um, there were no jobs. What year was that then? And there were no jobs for graduates. Hmm. I applied to fifty four companies. And they weren't taking them? Uh, no, it had nothing to do with your university or oh, anything like that. They just weren't taking anybody. And at the end of the day, I got a job offer from IBJ, for Industrial Bank of Japan at that time. You know, it was one of the biggest banks. And the second job offer that I received was from Smith Barney. And I took Smith Barney um, and, uh, because it sounded very promising. And number two, they were going to send me down to New York. Um, and as a 23-year-old going down to New York and living there and learning the and learning the business of securities was so appealing to me. <laughs> and so I went down to Smith Barney. I um, I stayed there. With, I stayed with Smith Barney for many years. I have a lot of people to thank. I don't know who, how many people watched the podcast. There's, there was Fred Wright and back. There was. Uh, uh, my branch manager, um, you know, who actually took me in, and I've, I think I was the only, the only person that they took that year. Wow. Only one. And they did send you to New York. They did send me to New York right away. So you got it. So you, they did I what got they it. promised. Yeah, as promised, they sent me down to New York. And how long were you in New York? Uh, for about maybe two years or so. Started out. I mean, in the beginning, they wanted me to push down to every department. So I went down to operations, and I went down. And before going to New York, they sent me down to Santa Rosa which was in Napa Valley. Uh, at that time, Napa Valley was very unknown to Japan. And uh, so I went down to Napa Valley, stayed there for a couple of weeks. And then from there, I flew down to New York. And, um, and uh, my career started out that way. And uh, taking care of US equity, I uh, met great people in the scheme of things um, you know, while we were doing that. Um, and it was very, very intriguing. Uh, I learned a lot of. Uh, I, I am who I am today because, because of that. Because of that. How long were you with them? How long? Uh, for about maybe six years. Six years. Six years or so. And you ended up in the same position. Were you in the same? Yeah, um, it was same mostly area, on area. the same, mostly same on the area. same side. Right. So you're right there on Wall Street. Right. I was on Wall Street. Yes, you had to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to be to the the wait the New York Stock Exchange and the American Stock Exchange. Oh uh, no, right? New York NYSE. Okay, I see. Just NYC. So I, uh, at that time, I don't know, people that go down to New York today, uh, you know, they can't really enter the floor. They can mm -hmm. only see the building from the outside. It was sad, and I think I don't have to go into details, but, you know, I literally walked the NYSE floors. I uh, was, uh, you know, taking tickets, uh, you know, from, from traders and yes. passing them on to the pits. It was uh, quite an interesting um Adventure of my life, or right. basically, because didn't, didn't they have different colored rooms, like the blue room and the red room? Was that how it was? No, we were on the main floor. On the main floor, right? The I'm main sorry. floor, right, right, right. So that's what you see every morning at, that's at, right. at on CNN. On CNN, that you know the bell goes off and right. you know everybody starts ticking. So, but the hours are very long. You have to be there about uh, eight thirty. Market starts at nine, ends at four p.m. So you basically stand out and eat lunch. In the Nikkei, it's very different because they have one hour for lunch. Uh, NYSE doesn't stop. 
it continues uh, continues trading, and uh, so we did that. Uh, back on um, so Smith Barney was quite an experience for me at that point. Did you were you did you get married during that time? No, 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 no. I was you single. Stayed single. I was stayed single. single. Uh, okay. That was the right choice. Okay. And then when you came back, uh -huh. you came back to do what? Came I came to back to Tokyo. I, you know, I uh, was taking care of, uh, you know, orders that were basically to be executed on the NYSE, um, and basically did that. Um, and after that, um, so basically, it's just basically called an equity trader or right. equity sales trading or operations or whatever you want to call it. That's mm -hmm. basically what it is. And from there, where'd you go? From there, uh, my adventure started out. Then I went down to ING Bearing. Uh, ING Bearing basically collapsed. Uh, we all know that. And then from there, um, I think I went down to HSBC. But how long were you at ING Bearing? Until the time it collapsed for about maybe two or three years. Two or three years, okay. And then HSBC. Then HSBC shut down so in shut Japan. <laughs> so we, all of us. Were you there with Paul Hoff? Uh, no, Paul Hoff was in, was uh, in the asset management division. Okay, actually, okay. So uh, we were division. in the uh, HSBC Premier. Okay. HSBC Where was that Premier located Center. in Japan? I'm just uh, thinking Nihonbashi. Nihonbashi. Okay. Nihonbashi. Well, that's, Paul was in Nihonbashi too. That's right. He was but in the asset management. Right. No, it's a whole building. Same whole building. It's okay. a whole building. So they were in the right. asset. The asset management still exists as of today. Right. And uh, basically the uh, the Premier side uh, which was on, uh, which is, I don't remember which floor it was, but we were on the premier side. So how long were you with HSBC? Until they shut down. <laughs> so how many years was that? Uh, that was about maybe two or three years. Are you married now? I'm married now. Is that where you got married? Uh, no. It was before that? I think it was it before be that. I, I, I don't exactly remember the year when I got married, but okay. it was, I think, before or little bit close to HSBC or okay. something like that. All right. So right after HSBC, where did you go? Uh, after HSBC sh uh, shut down, there was about 200 or something people that were basically looking for jobs. A lot of them went down to Japanese banks, Aozora. Um, a lot of us basically, you know, came down to do different things. So I got a job in Apple. Okay. Doing what? Uh, I was in the, in the business department for Apple. So the iPhone 5 and the iPhone 5S, which some of you may remember, we did the launch uh, for iPhone 5, iPhone 5S. What was your job with Apple? Uh, was business uh, was basically looking after the business uh, business divisions or basically business uh, business customers. At okay, that. what made you go to into Apple anyway? You're finance. I know, time, so. but given the okay. fact that HSBC shut down and we were looking for jobs, and I applied for Apple, and they <laughs> happily took me in. <laughs> All right. So I went down to Cupertino. At that time, Steve Jobs was, uh, you know, was this, uh, was running the firm and uh, spent about maybe two or three years. And then I, I basically walked out of Apple after that. Okay. To do what? Uh, well, actually, the, the the culture of Apple is great, and uh, but you know they are basically you know they can come in shorts, they can come into t-shirts, they can come into anything. And I was basically ever since twenty three, we were basically more wearing suits. Did that, that affected you? Uh, yes, it did. I mean, for tech people, it really doesn't affect them. But you know, if you're coming in from a finance background, mm -hmm. and if you're used to wearing suits and being there, you know, at about seven a.m. in the morning, you know, every day listening to market calls and starting with the market starts, and all of a sudden you're coming into a company where it's very open, and it's got a great culture. It's uh, one of the best companies on the planet. I would, I, I personally think that, um, you know, but. Um, I actually wanted something different. 
Okay. So after that, I went down to EY, Ernest and Young, and I was a director there, and I was looking after the uh, I was the director in the business. Uh, I'm sorry, in the tax division, and uh, we were doing uh, basically marketing um, and business development for uh, for Shin Mihon or EY. And then um, we did that and uh, basically stayed with EY for about maybe a couple of years. And, uh, and then after that, you know, I came over, um, did a little bit of transitions in there. But then in the, at the end, I came down to a company called Capital uh, Asset Management. Yes. And uh, Capital Asset Management, uh, I basically learned on how uh, the asset management world. So from banking or from securities to banking to tax to asset management. And this transition gave me an idea on basically how things work. Okay. In the financial world. In the financial world and, and in the corporate world. Okay. Um, you know, we, by, by working in all these companies, and because at the times that, you know, when companies were shutting down or were basically moving away from Japan or X, Y, Z reasons or whatever it is, it basically gave me a pool of wealth. So, you know, a lot of people basically pretend they know, you know, what asset management is or basically what securities is. Or After working in just one section of it. Right. I see. So it basically gave me a whole hillside. Right. And... Uh, so I am here because of right. all of these aspects. You got a chance to see what the left and the right hand are doing. Right. Which most people are just, they really are. They're, they're tunnel vision into one area. They know a whole lot about very little. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, you got to find out about each area. Right. That's interesting. And you spent more than a couple of years in every single field you were in, right? Yes. Well, that's good. That's good. So where does that leave you today? Well, in 2000. Uh, sorry, in 20, 2019, uh, we heard a report um, that in Japan, the Ministry of Economy and Trade has come out with a very alarming report, which, is, which will affect every single person that will, that's listening to the podcast or you know, even remotely involved or even not involved, is that by 2030 in Japan, Japan will run out of, run out of IT engineers. There are no IT engineers in Japan, uh, very little. And uh, when I heard this, uh, this report that came out, um, you know, we, uh, we said that, you know, that something needs to be done. And we wanted to give back to Japan. There's something that we had to do to give back to Japan. What could we do? I mean, you know, the, Japan has raised us, it's given us all of the facilities, has given us the, uh, the security, uh, my daughter, which basically goes down to Japanese school, you know, um, you know, we, we owe it as foreigners. I think we owe it that if we like Japan, we should give back something to Japan. So I spoke, uh, I, I took this report and I, I went down to my boss at Capital Asset Management um, and I said, listen, you know, see this, you know, just, just got this from the Ministry of Economy and Trade. And it's like, yeah, and uh, Japan is going to have a very serious problem. And so uh, I resigned capital asset management in 2019, um, or yeah, 2019, end of 2019. And all of us, when I say all of us, there's a lot of people that are involved. We started out a company called Profound Vision. 
Profound visions uh, basically meaning is basically how to supply IT engineers to Japan. Um, some can call it a recruitment firm, some can call it, you know, a consulting firm, some can call it one or whatever you want to think about it. But uh, one of our prime ideas is, is to bring in the IT engineers to Japan and supply them to the Japanese corporations. One of the things we learned in this process, and we've spent three years of developing this process, not, not one year, not two years, three years. And uh, we learned that a lot of Japanese companies are now hiring uh, non-Japanese speakers, um, companies such as Rakuten or even Pepe or Amerikari, or you might want to call it, you know, there's some other companies that are growing. Yes, the, the small medium industry businesses are basically trying to, um, you know, uh, they don't have any English capability within their firms uh, that can hire the non-Japanese uh, speakers, but it's coming around. Um, so all of us basically, um, you know, we decided to do this. So I'm the COO of Profound Vision, um, and how long have you? How long has this company existed? Well, the how company actually started out in 2009. 2009. Right. My wife used to run Profound Vision. She used to run. Run. Yeah. It was basically, you know, she used. She had this company that she used didn't used to do much with it. She created a company in 2009 as a private, uh, as a as a sole proprietor company. Who were you working with then in 2009? Uh, I was with. I think I was with HSBC or HSBC, something like that. HSBC. Okay. Yeah. So that's the time. Okay. And you see her. And you say, that's a good idea. I think I'll marry this woman. No, <laughs> <laughs> no actually, we started out, I mean, she started out the company when I, uh, when she was there. But the idea of Profound Vision was, is basically, she, she's from Yamagata. And she wanted to, you know, take out the Yamagata products like rice or Nihonshu or cherries or peaches down to, you know, Singapore or just something, just something on the, on the side. So to, the company was existent in 2000 and, uh, from 2000 and, uh, 2009, but it never really, I mean, it was just something that, you know, she used to just do as a hobby. hobby okay. So when I came in and when, when we came in in 2019, we changed it from a sole proprietor to a Kabushiki Gaisha. Uh, we have now uh, 24 shareholders. Uh, we have about maybe nine advisors to the board, um, and we have a president, a chairman, uh, staff, and everything. So Profound Vision, that was her company, is no longer. I mean, she is basically a little bit in control. But you took it. You took it, we took it, took it, it away. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what men always do. We find a woman take it. We take it away. Okay. But, you know, but now that Profound Vision has grown, you know, into a, a small, medium business, um, you know, we, um, we are working with the government of Japan, we're working with corporations of Japan in order to deliver the IT engineers to Japan. Well, how would you say, around how many have you been able to bring in during this time? Well, it was, don't, don't forget that we had COVID. That was soon, 2019 is when it started. When it right. started. And, um, it. and for three years, it was COVID. So, right. so we spent three years in, um, in basically preparing ourselves on how right. we will do this. Uh, we have created a system called FITE. Uh, it's simply F-I-T-E. It basically stands for Foreign IT Engineers. Okay. It's simply, it's just short form of Foreign IT Engineers stands for FITE.JP. Fight um, and uh, people go in and, you know, and people can, um, 
find out the IT engineers that they need, and um, and so everybody's happy. So what are the we don't deal with uh, just like a normal IT engineer. We do, I mean, but we look at basically more like AI engineers, data scientists. So do they have to actually come here physically, or can they be online and be hired to do it from wherever they are remotely? Um, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Um, it depends if the, for example, if the if the IT engineer is hired on uh, on a regular basis, they have to pay, they have to get the insurance package from MHLW or Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare, and in order to get that um, that package or basically get the insurance, the person has to have a, a, a visa for Japan and has to come into physically into Japan in order to do this. So you know we had a lot of help, a lot of people. Um, that basically assisted us in these three years. We, we couldn't have done it alone. Yeah. Uh, if I had a list of people, I would go on for hours. Um, but there was a lot of people, um, and uh, you know, I, we have still long ways to go. Um, but you know, if we can help Japan and we can um, provide Japan something, you know, that's our own gaishi. That sounds marvelous. Well, see, just before this podcast, we started talking about your group is going to be coming in. Yeah, I, 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 I will try in. to bring them in. But when are they going to be coming in? How many people are we talking about? Well, we can have about maybe four, four, or maybe somebody mm -hmm. online as well. We can bring in four or five. So Then maybe we wouldn't be able to do it here. We have to find a place where we could do it, where we could have a monitor if we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to sit down and do it through the system I have set up, mm -hmm. then we could do it here and have the table, you know, yeah. have it set up a little bit differently, mm -hmm. right? And make that'd it be work. great. I mean, uh, each person will have their own their own thoughts about it, how they came in, how they did it. I mean, um, a lot of the people that have come in are basically experts of uh, of you know of of their own of their own league. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very well respected. Um, and almost if, as, as you see the team coming in, you would know half of them anyway. No, Phil, mm -hmm. you, you started this because your wife started it actually. Mm -hmm. So you had to recruit the people to get them in. Yes. Or basically okay. not recruit, but at basically least convince them, convince them to please come in. Come, come in. Because your wife had set it up, and I wouldn't think that she'd be the one to do it because she was doing it as a hobby. She was doing and it as a hobby. She just wanted to get some products out of her local yeah. area. You know, out a little bit more expanded. Right. So you came in and said, hmm, this is a good idea. <laughs> Why don't we expand this uh -huh. and make it more of a situation where we're actually getting more people to come in instead mm -hmm. of going out? That's right. Let's get people, IP people to come in since you heard that. Mm. Um, the report. The report that came out. Mm. That's interesting. That is See, so nothing, you don't know anything that will change your mind or your life from anything that you can cross across. I mean, I was not thinking of leaving banking and basically coming in and bringing IT engineers to Japan. I never, I mean, I never thought about it. <laughs> I mean, well, who knows? But I mean, it was something of a spark that basically, that basically gave us that, that idea. And uh, today we have, um, you know, certifications from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Um, you know, we have, you know, uh, we have, Certifications from the Ministry of Economy and Trade. I mean, our company has a lot of certifications. Uh, you know that we are a good, viable company. I mean, I don't know if a lot of the speakers here or you know the listeners. Well, that so. means a lot in Japan because yeah. they really do their due diligence before they do out, before they give you anything. That's right. And they make sure they don't. They do not play here. Yeah, 
when you get that in Japan and they say that you're viable, mm -hmm. you can't get a better stamp of approval. Right. So I mean, we had yes. to we had to prove that our company is viable, and we mm -hmm. had to sustain that. You know, we have just not opened up a firm, but a company that has been certified from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government or from the Government of Japan, and that took a long time. And like exactly like you said, the due diligence that went in was. And usually Japan considers that. I think that's almost synonymous with time. Mm -hmm. If you can't gum on, you can mm -hmm. forget about trying to do stuff here. That's right. And uh, working with the Japanese <laughs> government is not easy. So, Dwayne, take me back a little bit mm. more, no feel. Mm. When did You told me when you got that report. When you got that report, that mm. made you think that. But what made you think to use your wife's profound vision company to do it? Well, instead of a different name. Well, um, in Japan, the uh, the company's history matter a lot when you go down to banks, when you go down to clients. Uh, if you go down to a company saying that your company started out two days ago, good luck. Uh, coming in with a company that started in 2009 that has absolutely zero or spotless record means a lot. And, uh, you know, when clients or, any, or the governments or the banks, when we go to them and we tell them that our company has been there from 2009, and even though we turned it into a company limited in 2019 or 2000, uh, 2019, um, it's an easier sell. Um, so so that, was the, 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 that was the main reason. Right, because to start a brand new, just taking you a... It's the trust factor time. is like, right, exactly. the trust factor is not there. And she already had that. Yeah. She'd already built that. Yeah. Well, no Phil, mm -hmm. before I end the podcast, mm -hmm. there's a question I'd like to ask. Sure. If you were to go back in time, mm -hmm. if you could possibly go back in time and mm -hmm. talk to the younger No Phil mm -hmm. and give him advice, mm -hmm. what advice would you give him and how old would he be? It's an interesting question. I actually would not go back and tell the younger No Phil any advice because I think the path and the careers that he has taken is who I am today. Uh, the younger Nofil never got into any trouble with the police or with anything or any establishments whatsoever. And uh, I owe it a lot to my dad and um, and I owe it, of course, my mom and dad. And But I owe it to a lot of my friends. Um, the trust factor, the people that I met, you know, over the years are the people that I really want to thank. And I don't have to go into the name. You guys know who you guys are. The same Mary's is so tight. They're so so tight. <laughs> and uh, my my dad always used to say that live a, a life that is full rather than a longer life. So you know, a full life is basically very difficult to achieve. A longer life people can achieve. So that's so something true. that uh, that I actually look forward to. Could have been better said. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you very much. Thank you. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And never forget, it's all on loan, so continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed.